verses 18 to 34. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter's just died, but come and put your hand on her and she'll live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And the crowd, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men following him called out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and couldn't talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Well, hello everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, As Tim said, my name's Martin, and we're going to look at this amazing passage together. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, thank you for your word, the Bible. Please help us to trust it. Please help us to see Jesus more clearly today. Please help us to have faith. Please change us. And help us to withstand change well. Amen. Well, hello. Uh, I wonder, as we start, if I can ask this question. How do you cope with change? You see, sometimes change is sudden. And other times it feels like it's taking years. Now, if it's quick, there's still a a period of adaptation afterwards. But you know where you are, and you know what's what, and things can actually be quite clear. But other change takes longer. There can be ambiguity. Ambiguity in getting to know someone romantically. Valentine's Day is coming up this week, in case you didn't know. You've got to keep doing life while that's working out, or not working out. Maybe your football club gets bought by someone with squillions of money, but the window isn't open and they don't seem to be spending yet, and you still keep following the team, even though you don't know what style of play that they're going to have next season. Perhaps at some stages in your career you have a new job, but it takes time to adjust to it. 
And there are many months when you just aren't sure. And actually, handling ambiguity and working with partial information is a strong predictor of success in many modern workplaces. It can be very good news, of course. There can be a happy buzz if your company is taken over by a much larger organisation is going to invest a lot of, in your area of the business. But you've still got to do your job while that's working out. How can we be patient and work things through when we don't have all the facts or know how things will turn out? Well, we've been seeing in the book of Matthew what happened when Jesus began to preach and teach that the kingdom of God is near. And that was a time of change, slow change, where people were working out what was happening. In fact, the summary of these two chapters of Matthew is in the next verse from the one that Julie read. And it's going to be a great starting off point for when we pick the book of Matthew up again. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And it's been a time of turmoil and change. Some people are beginning to hope that something amazing could happen. Many are thrilled by what Jesus is doing. They marvel, they are amazed, but others are wary. And some are beginning to be concerned about what Jesus might mean for them and their reputations and their social standing. Nothing is quite the same after Jesus has passed through, that's for sure. It's a divided society too. This land had been brought into the Roman Empire, as you may know, and the culture is being preserved by Jewish people who hold to the faith and traditions of their parents. So the Romans have allowed the Jewish religion to continue and were the ultimate authority, but the Jewish people have their own leaders and teachers who instruct people on how to live under the Roman rule. So Jesus comes along and he preaches and he quotes and explains parts of the Jewish scriptures. He talks about the kingdom of heaven being near. People call him rabbi, a title of respect for being a Jewish teacher, which he expects. And what does he do? He heals the servant of a Roman centurion back in chapter 8. And then he eats and socializes with tax collector collaborators earlier in chapter 9. He's connecting with people outside the culture and outside acceptability. It was actually kind of scandalous and surprising. And when one of the guardians of tradition, a teacher of the law, declares that he will follow Jesus, Jesus gives him the brush off. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, a title in the earlier books of the Bible associated with power and glory. But Jesus says the Son of Man will be homeless. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man will be homeless. And last week we heard about Jesus' encounter with disciples of another famous preacher of the time, John the Baptist. They were asking about a difference to do with fasting, and Jesus made it clear that the kingdom he is talking about is not just a bolt-on extra to their existing religion subscription. It's a total start again. New wine goes into new wineskins, Already shrunk cloth, a cloth is needed to repair old clothes. New clothes with a tear in them need new cloth. That's what he's talking about. Something completely new. But it's not entirely clear yet who Jesus is and what this kingdom is that he's talking about. Something big is coming, but it's a time of ambiguity. Nonetheless, 
in our reading today, there is a wave of interest and hope such that when a local synagogue leader suffers a terrible family tragedy, his daughter dying, the synagogue leader does something extraordinary. The expectation would be that he would stay at the house for people to come and to mourn with him, to show their respect and their sadness. They would come, he would sit and accept the sincere words of appreciation and condolence. He would be strong for his family and for his community. The pipers would play. Due ceremony and mourning would happen. But the synagogue leader doesn't stay still and allow that to happen. Setting aside propriety, braving disapproval, he comes and kneels at Jesus' feet. He's humble. He shows faith. And he dares to ask Jesus for the impossible, for his daughter to live again. And Jesus goes with him. On the way, a woman touches Jesus' cloak. Quite apart from the weakness and pain she had experienced, the condition she had would have excluded her from a lot of society. It would have affected her marriage or prospects of marriage, and it would have made her spiritually unclean and unable to go to the temple. Indeed, her very presence could have made other people unclean if they had touched her. But she dares to touch Jesus' cloak because she has faith. She believes she will be healed. And Jesus turns round. Other teachers would have accused her of defiling them. She would have braced herself for what was coming next. It was a very tense moment. You've made me unclean. Now I can't go and be with respectable people. Your actions cancelled me. Until I can be ritually purified. Now, it may be that the woman knew that Jesus was going to a place where there was a dead body and he had been asked to put his hand on the dead girl when he got there, in which case Jesus was about to be ritually unclean anyway. And that's why she decided to take her chance. But after 12 years, she would know that that is something she should not do and would get serious disapproval for. What does Jesus do? Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And instant healing it is too. Far from making Jesus unclean, the woman herself is made clean. Arriving at the synagogue leader's home, the noisy mourners, at the time mourning is kind of not so much respectful silence as paid wails of grief, they're all put out of the house. Jesus says the girl is sleeping, and he's laughed at. Jesus is not saying, by the way, that medically they've got it wrong and the girl is actually alive. The Bible refers in several places in the Old and New Testament to the dead being asleep. It's a euphemism that Jesus uses here. The mourner's laugh is their expression of belief or unbelief. They, they believe and they know that the girl is dead and she's going to stay that way. And that is why they're there. And Jesus has gone too far. And Jesus is embarrassing himself. But confronted with death, Jesus brings life. The girl gets up from her deathbed. Her father's faith in Jesus is justified and wonderfully proved right. So too with the story of two blind men. Now, two blind guys crying out was probably not that unusual at the time or surprising. They follow Jesus and they ask for mercy. And Jesus 
does not heal them instantly. But they follow Jesus again and come into the house where he is. And Jesus asks them, do you believe that I can do this? Are they crying out out of desperation or is there faith in Jesus personally? See their reply? Yes, Lord. Jesus touches their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? It isn't actually a test of Jesus' power to make blind people see. It's a test of the blind men's faith in Jesus as Lord. And their sight is restored. They once could see, then they lost their sight, and because of the Lord Jesus, the blind men can see again. And then the last miracle in this series, a man who cannot talk because a demon is controlling him. Now, there are other places in the life of Jesus in Mark's Gospel where being mute is not attributed to a demon being in control. And Jesus heals the person. The people of the time can tell when the condition is because of natural causes, but they can also tell when a real demon is controlling someone and making them disabled. And here Jesus drives out the demon, and wonderfully, the man can speak. And Matthew focuses on two responses to this. Did you see them? First the crowd at the end of verse 33. They're amazed. They know their history. They know that God had rescued his people, the Jews, with amazing miracles and acts of power. The Jews. They know that God had acted in Israel's history to give them victories and to preserve the nation. And they know that this is unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And some people may have just, that was enough. They know enough to know that this is a record. They know enough to call it. God is God. You see their friends that week at the market. We're living in an amazing time, aren't we? Special days, eh? But for others who know the prophecy parts of the Bible as well as the history parts, there was beginning to be growing excitement. During this part of Jesus' life and ministry, he went and worked his miracles. Some have thought of the Old Testament predictions of how God would work in the future. We don't have time to go through all of the connections between the prophecies and Jesus' fulfillments here, but this is one. From Isaiah 35, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Was this now? The crowd would have wondered. Was this the time for God's reckoning, for God's judging, for God to move and act? So that's one response. But did you notice the response in verse 34? Kind of an opposite response. The Pharisees were saying something very different. The Pharisees, perhaps it's a caricature, but the Pharisees are a bit like the bossy people on your neighborhood WhatsApp. They knew right from wrong. They knew how to live the right life. All the Romans were in charge. And people listened to them and people tried to live up to their standards if they could afford to. The Pharisees looked at Jesus removing a demon from a man and the wonderful healing and blessing that came to him and attributed terrible motives They actually said that Jesus was using the power of the devil to drive out the demon. Far from being an amazing, powerful example of God working in the world, they actually attributed it to supreme evil. 
And this is actually the risk for all of us. Could we get Jesus wrong? Could we get him slightly wrong? Just miss out a little bit. Could we get him totally wrong? Could we miss out on what God has for us? Some people just want the good things that Christian faith brings. The good life outcomes. The Protestant work ethic is celebrated for making good employees. The tolerance and dignity that we take for granted in a democratic society has its roots in Christianity. Cultural Christianity is credited with inspiring great art and social welfare reforms. Some people just want the community of friendship that a church can bring. Perhaps they like the music. Other people look at Christianity and see the opposite. They can only see coercion and deception. They see limits to freedoms of behaviour and to precious systems of thought. And to those of us who know the Bible and try to live by it, first of all, there is a very sobering warning here. See, C.S. Lewis famously said, famously said, and it is true, that there are only three conclusions that you can ultimately arrive at about Jesus. If you believe the Bible and you look at his miracles and his teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection, there are actually only three endpoints. And they're all very short words. Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. And it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very careful to read the Bible and to shape their behavior to apply the Bible according to what they read in it who would not just give 10% of their money income, but 10% of the herbs from their herb garden. It was the Pharisees who ended up saying, bad. Bad. His miracles are from the devil. His power is from Satan. See, lifestyle and patterns of behavior was what the Pharisees really wanted from God. And nothing more. They didn't want the person of Jesus. Jesus walked with them. Jesus talked with them. They could have touched him. They saw his miracles. And they got him totally wrong. Well, to get Jesus right, we need to answer the so what question. So what question is so useful in life, isn't it? You hear someone talking for a while, so what? Yeah, okay. So what? Why did Jesus do any of this? The girl who's alive and then died, and Jesus made alive, well, she died again. And no one here has heard of a 2,000-year-old woman in, ancient, in Israel. The woman with bleeding was excluded and unclean once more because she died. The eyes that were made to see eventually saw no more. The muted lips and tongue were made to speak, but then eventually they fell silent. Was this just an early version of a Mr. Beast video? Hands up here if you know who Mr. Beast is. Okay, the the new video dropped last night. Guys, if you put your hand up, uh, $800,000 if you can endure your worst fear. Mr. Beast, if you don't know who he is, is a rich American who makes very, very popular YouTube films. Some of them have hundreds of millions of views now. One of them is about getting a new home for 100 dogs at the local dog's home. Another is to give away a car to the first person who stops by the side of the road to help someone change a wheel. Is that what Jesus' miracles are? In the end, they don't mean much. 
certainly not to us at this distance. Are they kind of clickbait? No. They are signs of Jesus being that promised king. They are signs of a special time when God would act. Yes, perfect spiritual healing and that age people are beginning to get excited about, but also a perfect ruler, a perfect king at the centre of those plans. We, we can, and I hope do, reject the Pharisees' rejection of verse 34. But it isn't enough to just be amazed like the crowd in verse 33. There's another way. I don't know if you noticed it in this passage. How can we understand Jesus right? In the, the two chapters of Matthew we've looked at so far here in um, Grace Church Worcester Park in 2024 so far, there are three times that the titles of the Son of get brought up. And they're all actually slightly funny. Firstly, we've spoken about it already. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, back in chapter 8. The teacher of the law says, who will follow him? And that goes awkward very quickly, because Jesus says, oh, the Son of Man's going to be homeless. I mean, where do you go in the conversation after that? The second is when Jesus and the disciples are on a boat, and there's a raging storm. And Jesus calms the storm. And makes it mill pond flat. And the disciples who are experienced fishermen, we sang about them earlier, they ask, who is this? That the wind and waves obey him. They're kind of staggering. They're on the shore. And the next thing Matthew tells us, two mentally disordered men appear. And they cry out, son of God. The disciples, they're the ones who've been with Jesus. They're the ones who are supposed to be learning. And it's the men with demons who answer the question. And thirdly here, Maybe not humour, but irony. The blind men calling out Jesus, son of David, son of David, they see more clearly than everybody else here, even though they're blind. The title son of David is putting Jesus into the line of promised king. He is the one who will bring about God's supreme plan. And the blind men trust him personally. They are trusting in Jesus. They call him Lord. And we can do the same. Trusting not just in the social benefits, not just in the blessings, not just in the happiness and amazingness that come from Jesus, but trusting in Jesus himself. Now, sitting here, you may be wondering, going back to the encounter with the blind men, if that is the secret, if that's why this matters, why did Jesus tell the blind man not to go about talking about what had happened? Did that strike you as odd? Well, Jesus was preaching about a kingdom. He uses that word, but it wasn't and isn't a political kingdom. It isn't a nation state that will be independent of any empire and stand above other nations. He didn't want the predictions about being the promised descendant of David out there at this stage. Jesus actually wanted the ambiguity. He wanted to build up an understanding in the crowds by teaching as well as miracles of what his kingdom is about. It's not about their political freedom. It's about him. It's far more wonderful. And it's an offer that's open to us too. Because we can enter the kingdom. Come to Jesus. Trust him.
Have faith. Did you see how important it was that there was trust in each case as we went through? The synagogue ruler, he set aside his self-respect and knelt at Jesus' feet to show his loyalty and his faith. The woman who was bleeding, the blind man who called out and followed, the mute man's friends. That's the way into the kingdom. Have faith in the king. If you're looking into into Christian things as you're hearing this, it's about Jesus. It's not just that he's amazing. He is very loving and very kind. He's worth trusting. He's worth trusting your heart to emotionally. He loved the people he helped. They weren't just illustrations for his revealing of the kingdom, mere demonstrations of his power. People were genuinely helped. People with serious long-term disabilities were healed. He doesn't have to touch people. There's no mention of touching for the mute man. Jesus healed the Roman centurion servant when he wasn't even near him. But he does it because he wants to. He does it because he cares for people. He wants that connection. He cares for the people who are going to be his signs. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Jesus is very kind. He has such kindness and tenderness towards the woman who had been bleeding. Take heart, daughter. Some of us here maybe need to reach out in faith like she did. Some of our friends. Some of our family. Some of our colleagues and friends. They're close. And they need to reach out in faith. Well, don't let Jesus' character stop anyone. Because he's wonderful. And he's very kind. For some of Worcester Park going to mean giving up carefully built reputations. It'll mean going against convention. It's worth giving up status for. It's worth being humble for. Think of the synagogue ruler who knelt at Jesus' feet. It was a lot to do, but it was so worth it. Are you ready to give up your social respect and status or your lifestyle to follow Jesus, even if it means having no permanent address in this world? like some of those people Bob prayed for earlier. Don't expect social cohesion. Jesus didn't bring it, as we will see as Matthew's Gospel goes on. We make much of social cohesion these days. People worry about what our society and our community will look like if not everybody is looking at the same TV programs or hearing the same news or reading the same books or believing the same things. Everyone these days from the algorithms gets their own personal YouTube and Facebook. We get different values fed back to us and reinforced and we find it harder and harder to keep listening to all the different views around. And there are loads more cultures in Britain these days anyway. Well, Christians are super equipped to deal with this kind of mixed up society. We know the king. Nothing happens that surprises him. He's the son of man will come to judge all. But we get to know him now as a tender, kind Lord that the blind man found. We get to know him as the healer who didn't just stop the bleeding, but spoke tenderly as well to the woman who is suffering. As Jesus moves through ancient Israel in this passage from the Bible, it's becoming clear that not everybody is going to have the same take If a nice united society was the most important thing to you, then Jesus actually ultimately disappointed you. 
He knew the Bible so well. He could teach with authority. He could handle any situation. But his goal was not to get the maximum number of people agreeing with each other and living happily together. His goal was to build a community of faithful people trusting in him. And the answer in this time of change then is the same one that we need now. To trust in Jesus the King. Whatever other people say, trust in him. Let me be quiet for a moment and then I'll pray. Father God, we have little faith. We're kind of fragile. We need someone else to help us sometimes. Father, please help us to to trust in you. You are marvellous and you are amazing. Please help us to, to know your character, to know Jesus' character and how amazing he is. Please help us to to thrill to his words. Please help us to move beyond churchianity and a club that happens on Sundays sometimes. Please help us to trust in the real son. Please help us to have faith for our friends and our family. Father, they can be mute to start with. Just give us the faith. Help us this week at Holiday Club to have faith for the children until wonderfully we trust and hope they have faith themselves. Father, please help us to remember that the kingdom of heaven, the actual people that you rule and reign over everywhere in the world are those who trust in the king whatever happens to our country whatever happens to our careers or our families whatever changes there are please help us to trust the king amen